Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome to Punching Out. I'm Noah, and I am joined by Lou. Hey, guys. Today, we'd like to talk about, well, the same topic that we and everyone else has been talking about for the past two weeks, which is, you know, coronavirus. But specifically, the things that have changed since we last directly discussed the impact of coronavirus on workers. Lou, you had the idea for this episode. Would you like to kind of sketch it out for the listeners? Right. So what's what has basically changed in, in our country in the past few weeks is that we have gone from barely controlling the, the virus in a lot of states to it going way the hell out of control. And a whole bunch of states just making the choice to just say, whatever, who cares? This is this is the way it needs to be in order to protect the freedoms. So it's just really surprising to, to me, and, and I hope to a lot of people, the level to which w- so many people have just accepted death in the face of what is essentially a preventable disease. Um, it is bad. It is extremely contagious. It is deadly. But there are definitely things we could do to prevent deaths. And they've said, nah, that's, that's too much. We're, we're gonna, we'd rather die. And then taking it a step farther to say, not only are we okay with dying, it is noble to die in the face of this virus or basically in the face of anything else that's going on in our country. Uh, if they're cops, like that's, that's, they're good because they're willing to die for their job kind of thing. And, and just the, the absurd degree to which we have accepted death in our culture as noble. So that's where my brain is. It's been a fun few weeks. How are you guys doing? The only other person in the room, which is me. <laughs> um, well, yeah, point is. I mean, it's, yeah, that's where we're, we're at. We're talking about, ultimately, what we are talking about here is that we have a country that uh, just this week, it came out that the White House's new messaging plan is going to be, well, we just have to live with this, which I mean is is not exactly new. We we knew from the beginning that with the the way that the Trump administration works, what makes it tick, there was no way in hell that we were going to get a comprehensive plan. There was no way in hell that we were going to get a competent plan. It was all going to be feed people to the meat grinder and hope we muddle through because that's what we do as a country. But it seemed like at least locally, most governors, because they're accountable to a far smaller number of people, uh, were actually kind of managing to uh, sort of sort out a halfway decent response. Here in New York State, of course, we have America's collective Italian dad, uh, Andrew Cuomo, who uh, has responded to the coronavirus by giving a bunch of briefings, inviting his daughter's boyfriend over, and handing the entire state's education to Bill Gates. 
But um, you had guys like uh, Ron DeSantis, who's governor of Florida. Just a couple months ago, I remember getting all these articles that were talking about how despite the fact that, you know, there haven't been any mask mandates, despite the fact that the state as a whole had not really put anything through in terms of what its residents were supposed to, things were actually kind of going okay. And now Florida is one of the biggest hotspots in the country, if not the single biggest. In Texas, uh, Greg Abbott didn't issue a mask mandate and then gave gold stars to everybody who figured out that that meant counties could still do it. But finally, this week, he was forced to do it because his state could not be more on fire with the coronavirus. And then California actually went through with reopening and uh, has had to close down again, which is everybody's fear, I think. We talked a few weeks back on this show about how, like, Americans, the the national mood of response is like, we need to shoot the coronavirus with a gun. Like, we need to show (laughs) it that we're not scared. And it it seems like the fear of having to close down again was much greater uh, than the fear of closing down the first time because, like, the coronavirus would grow that it won. That was that. That's yeah. kind of a weird thing that's emerged. Uh, I think in the last few, in the last month or two, um, we're all going to get fed to this thing eventually. It's pretty obvious. I mean, Lou, I believe you are actually. I mean, you've been working from home during this, but you're actively on grounds again, right? Yeah, I'm. I'm back at work. We're we're open. I mean, it, it could be like I I could be working at a worse place, but it's still pretty concerning. Um, like I I know in my heart of hearts that we'll close again come fall, um, but that's not something I can control. They don't listen to me. It's fine. Yeah, no, so yes, there is a fear of of closing again, but I think like if it gets really, really bad, it's weird to me that in some states they did close because they there's just such a blase attitude about it of, oh, well, we tried nothing and it didn't work out. Ah, well, what can you do? I guess we're just going to have to roll with it. Like there's such an acceptance of of fate about it. Um, that's really disturbing because it doesn't have to be like this. Um, like I think I heard weeks ago that Hong Kong had like one case or something like that in their schools and they still didn't open up their schools. If they had, and if they had another case, they wouldn't reopen. And, you know, Florida is sitting around with 11,000 cases in a single day and has essentially made no moves to further close or stop or reverse it like they've sort of reversed it they closed bars and gyms but you know the the stay-at-home orders aren't widespread or universal and there's just kind of an acceptance of there's going to be tons of people who are going to ignore it because my freedoms and then you see people who lose loved ones to this and in the same set breath they say Oh, tragic, taken too soon. You know, this was really sad. They also say, but at least she didn't wear a mask and she fought for her freedoms the whole time, which is insane. Like that's that's a level of psychosis that I think is really unexpected, even in this country, which is famously cuckoo bananas. 
there is a level there is a level of fatalism to this that that's pretty surprising the amount to which i mean we're going to we're going to be coming at this a fair amount through uh the um the lens of baseball but you know famed uh former baseball player and current uh noted twitter user aubrey huff uh <laughs> posted a bunch of stuff about how he didn't want to wear a mask and whatnot in between I don't think we can air any of the other topics that he tweets about. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but there was an article in the Atlantic a few weeks back, and I'm not going to give it the clicks by mentioning who wrote it or what the title was, but it was basically a public health expert saying that we shouldn't really shame people who don't want to wear a mask because that's not what works. Um, and it was just an article written with uh, such outsized sympathy for a person that doesn't want to do this very basic thing. Like, to be clear, I know that there are, I, I know that as with everything else, as with every mandate and every health regulation and everything else that you can put into effect, pardon me, um, there's always going to be people who have, uh, be it a chronic disability, be it something acute, be it whatever, that, um, prevents them from obeying that mandate. There will always be, you're, you're always going to leave someone out. But in the particular case of COVID-19, the reason the masks are there, the reason you're putting them on is number one, somewhat to protect yourself, but mostly in the case that you are an asymptomatic carrier, it protects other people from you unwittingly spreading the virus. And it seems like the disconnect happened at the point where Americans were asked to do the bare minimum to help literally anybody else. And that's where things broke down. That's where you had right. uh, all these people creating these fake HIPAA cards that say that, you know, if, if you make me wear this, it's, it's a violation of HIPAA or the ADA or whatever other act they want to twist for their ends. Like they give a crap. Um, that's where you had Americans saying that, you know, the real first responders are the people wearing no masks. Um, and that's where you had mm -hmm. uh, just this entire cottage industry of people saying, no, we need to understand uh, like the, the most polite version of this I saw were people who admitted that the mask is a minor sacrifice, but that we should understand that it is one. And I just, I don't get this. I don't understand this at all. If you, um, a while back when it was Italy that was the hotspot and everyone was, you know, laughing at them for failing to control uh, this pandemic because, yeah, of course, it's the Italians. They can't do it right. And it was all of that kind of stereotyping about Southern Europe. Yeah. Uh, you had Italian mayors going about town and staying cleverly socially distanced and masked up and telling their constituents to get indoors. And they did it. Like when, when your mayor came out and told you, go play PlayStation for a while, stop coming out to the beach, you can't be out here, they did it. And yeah, those mayors are probably, a bunch of them are members of like fascist parties and whatnot, but they took that public responsibility seriously and their citizens took their obligations to each other seriously in, in return. Whereas over here, what you've got is literally no public official and no private official. You can't say anything as a person uh, and get a response on this. It, it's the attention that we assign to the person who just wants to be 
just the bully, ultimately, the, the one who wants to say, well, you know, your rights end or your fear ends where my rights begin or whatever. For some reason, that's the person that we end up letting suck all the air out of the room. And I do not understand that as a cultural assumption, not remotely. Yeah. And, and it should be noted that Italy's overall cases is probably less than our, as a country, daily caseload, or it's pretty mm-hmm. similar. And yeah. that, you know, Italy is a smaller country, but it's not that much smaller. Um, I think I said a few weeks back, because who knows how long we've been doing this, uh, that the U.S. has a third or... 5% of the world's population and accounted for a third of the total cases. Um, and that really hasn't changed. Uh, there's, there are other countries that have similarly weirdly reactionary politics that are beginning to have the same similar conditions to ours and that they're being led by, by people who are for a variety of reasons, just staunchly against doing anything. Um, and we can talk on and on ab- about why that might be so. Um, but to me, like the weirdest part again is just like the obsession with the noble cause um, that that dying for something as stupid as not wearing a mask seems to be evoking in people, which like it, it, it's weird. A lot of this um, the the pressure for having people wear masks in the public campaigns about it has been compared compared to the campaigns for people to wear condoms during the AIDS outbreak. Yeah. That's what that article in the Atlantic, that was the explicit comparison it was made. Well, other people, yeah. Other people have, have started picking it up too and elaborating on it. And they said, you know, shaming people didn't work then. So it's probably not going to work now, which is true. But typically when you're having sex, like that's two people, hopefully in a consensual relationship, that they can hopefully make those decisions. But if you're going out in public, everybody else is not consenting to having and being infected by you. So even even in that, the, on the surface, these two things are very similar. Um, wearing condoms and masks are this are similar, but. When you're out in public just existing, that is not a reason to be infected by this. We can't continue to be in constant lockdown um, for a variety of reasons that we've talked about on the show, economic, uh, emotional, social reasons. And we ha- there are ways to interact in public in ways that are safer for a lot of people, but people still refuse to do that on principle. Yeah, well, um, to me... The the thing that struck me was the context of both of those things. When the campaign's about, you know, here's how you stop the spread of HIV, um, those came out at a time when, at best, the federal government and state governments and pretty much everybody um, had, you know, at best stopped treating it like a disease that only affected gay people five years before. Like, it was... Yeah. an a very discriminatory environment and you can get where being told by public health experts, you have to do this thing, even though we don't normally care about your community. And we, you know, most of the time we still treat you like 
your human disease vectors and just you know pathogens that we allow to live we're going to tell you to do this one thing you can see where somebody would be angry about that justifiably where they might choose not to follow those instructions out of um you know a, a very real sense of being treated like the problem but then you look at what these people are doing and these are not people who are in any real sense oppressed this is just an outgrowth of the same kind of people who think that, and and some of this isn't even um, decidedly political, so there is definitely a, a, a current to that. But you know, the, these are the same people who think that they are at the height of oppression for anything from being conservative to being white to being vegan to being whatever, depending on who it is. Um, it just becomes a useful channel to push through the way that you already think the world has it out for you. And it is one thing that I have learned uh, since November 2019 is that it is very easy for people. Um, I mean, I knew this already, I suppose, but I, I've become really thunderstruck at how you simply can't drill through somebody's head that a, a, a complete lack of reality that benefits them has no bearing on what is actually happening. People will quite happily believe something completely counterfactual and continue to believe it in and double down on it uh, for however long, as long as there's some tangible benefit to them. And in this case, um, the way that we've set up American culture makes that really easy for the Aubrey's Huff of the world. All they have to do is say, you know, my, my individual freedoms are more important than anything else because quite frankly, I just, I want to be this guy. I want to be the person who, uh, um, I don't know, who's just such an individual that I'm not, you know, I'm not like the rest of you sheeple who have to wear masks. My my body is somehow tougher and able to, and it's like, that's not the point. Even if you don't ever actually suffer symptoms, you might be infecting the rest of the world. And like you said, Lou, nobody else is consenting to that. Yeah. That that is one thing that has absolutely baffled me about individualism as a cultural movement is sure. Cool. Yeah. If you want to do whatever you can or do whatever you want, whenever you want, that's fine. As long as it only ever affects you. But in economics, they talk about externalities, but we've just kind of ignored that as a culture. So even though we know, tons of things you know they've done tons of studies about externalities and and how your individual actions can affect others we've still only ever focused on how they affect you and your personal choice but i i do truly believe that if your actions will negatively impact others that is something maybe you shouldn't be doing um regardless of how it make how it impacts you that's how I feel. I do think we would be a little bit better off in this whole situation if others agreed. Um, but there's way too many people that just don't care. And, and the, like, I, like I keep saying, the most concerning part is they, they think that they're in the right to be able to, to do this. And they're so focused on, on this weird principle of it. And it has effects in other areas too you know other jobs and other industries are kind of 
affected by this kind of this weird death drive that we have in this culture. Yeah, it's um in in this particular case, and and I think this is something that we're going to see crop up again and again as we talk about this. What a lot of these people imagine is that there is no form of there is a that the only non-coercive thing is individualism. Um, I remember seeing somebody, and this is the height of uh, looking, of of cherry-picking a a weird person, but it was somebody who was insisting, you know, if you telling me to put a mask on puts you in charge of my health, and uh, you don't want me to be in charge of your health because I'll, I'll show up, I'll look at your shopping cart, and I will rip out all the junk food and whatever. And you, you certainly wouldn't want me to be that dictatorial about your health, now would you? Well, it's the same principle. And the thing that these people always miss is that ultimately, you know, one of these things has like personal choice, personal freedom is a good in and of itself to a point, but where it becomes a problem is where it keeps you from doing literally anything to protect everyone around you. And these people who think that they're in the right, I think are allowing um, some really dangerous ideas about the uh, extent to which individual action, to which emphasis on the individual is somehow non-coercive somehow has no effect on everyone else. Anyway, um, you mentioned, we've been talking about coronavirus specifically, but as you mentioned just now, Lou, th- this death drive, this is something that goes well, way beyond the current situation. So when we come back, we're going to take you through all the ways in which it affects society that were there long before the pandemic and that, uh, honestly, if we don't do something about it, are going to be there long after. We'll be right back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Noah, and I am still joined by Lou. Hey, guys. And in the first segment, we talked about sort of the the way that thought on the coronavirus pandemic that is still gripping the world has taken a turn that, unless you were very, very pessimistic about American culture in general, you maybe couldn't have foreseen which is that people are now basically willing to die of the coronavirus just so they don't have to wear a mask. Uh, The thing is, on Punching Out, if you haven't listened to us before, we often are that pessimistic about American culture. And in this case, we happen to know that the currents that inform the kind of person who wants to scare the coronavirus into going back in its hole uh, by showing it that they're not afraid to get it, that that person existed before the pandemic and that that is a strain that we actually see reflected throughout American society. Yeah, it's, it's, we're cheery. I will admit that I didn't see the whole, uh, I'm going to die for the virus thing coming. 
and and I I admit I am one of the more pessimistic people on this show. So that's me fooled. Yeah, uh, I I think it wasn't a surprise. I didn't know that it would get as bad as it has, but ultimately, really, given that I've worked and lived here long enough to know that there is a sizable segment of the population of this country that the thing they hate most is you trying to tell them something helpful that they didn't think of first. <laughs> I can't say I'm super shocked. Um, there's um, So we're recording this the day after... Uh, July 4th, and uh, today the Sean Doolittle... A.K.A. July 5th. Yeah. And uh, Sean Doolittle, the reliever for the Nationals, he was asked about he might opt out of the 2020 season still. And he's saying, you know, if you look at where other developed countries are in their response, and I'm quoting here, in their response to this, we haven't done any of the things that other countries have done to bring sports back. And he says this, which kind of struck me. He says, sports are like the reward of a functional society, and we're just trying to bring it back, even though we've taken none of the steps to flatten the curve or whatever you want to say. Don't get too angry yet. We did flatten the curve for a little bit, but we didn't use that time to do anything productive. Uh, we just opened back up for Memorial Day. We decided we're done with it. And later he says, we can't just have virus fatigue and think, well, it's been four months. We're over it. This has been enough time, right? We've waited long enough. Shouldn't sports come back now? No, there's things we have to do in order to bring this stuff back. And the thing is, uh, I know this is, you know, social media and all the things that come with that. But if you look at the replies, they're all people telling him he's wrong and the curve has been flattened and we absolutely did enough to flatten the curve. And if you point out that, well, no, you have several states that are now on fire and that, the way the 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 way that cases have to the point that they have decreased and where they have decreased has mostly been the fact that those were states that took the lockdown seriously from the get-go that just flies over the head of a lot of people and i know that we said we talk about other stuff so i'm here's where i'm going to make the segue happen um i think that goes back to this it's not that this is not new People getting all uh, head up about the idea that they have to do literally anything to help the rest of the world. People getting head up about the idea that there are things you can do that help not just yourself, but society. Really, people getting head up about the idea that we live in a society at all is, I don't think, unique to the pandemic. No. And what we wanted to talk about in this segment is sort of some of the ways in which the U.S. is set up to advantage those people yeah yeah if if nothing else this whole thing has is come to the realization that that was probably already there in the back of a lot of people's minds mine included um but this is all given voice to it is the idea that we're uh the only industries we really respect or find untouchable are industries that are focused around um death and killing so troops, cops, military industrial complex, that's basically it. Anything else that is good or necessary for a, a well-functioning society, which, spoiler, we do not have, uh, is seen as frivolous or unnecessary, especially when it comes to budgets from city, cities and state and, and the federal government, 
um, the priority that they all have to those industries over things like housing or education or healthcare or anything else really shows you what they prioritize in value. And so that's, it's always been there. It's just everything that's going on with everything. And there's a lot going on. Um, just pulls back the curtain and, and shows, shows people what we're talking about. Yeah, no, that, that actually kind of, it's not that I didn't realize that, but thinking about it in a more uh, general sense, let's say, kind of blew my mind because it's absolutely the case. Um, on the one hand, you have all of these people who are insisting, and we said this on the uh, uh, when we talked about policing on uh, the last episode that aired. You know, on the one hand, you have people who think that, uh, or who insist rhetorically anyway, that every cop is Andy Griffith and uh, he'll just, you know, hang out in his jail with the two cells. And so on. I have no idea. I haven't ever seen that episode of the show. Uh, but the point is, you know, everybody thinks it's your friendly neighborhood police officer. And those same people are the people who are, you know, tweeting like Punisher flags and whatever. And yeah. <clears throat> first of all, there, there's an obvious disconnect there where these are people who understand that that is that the actual reason that they're on the side of the cops is because, well, ultimately, because they're cowards who want the protection of, you know, violence visited upon their enemies. But at the same time, there's just this weird need to transform those people into not just agents of death and violence, which, as you're saying correctly, puts them above criticism, but also as honorable heroes who would never, ever use violence unless they absolutely needed to. But when they do, they are death machines? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's that we've given them culturally power from the state to operate this violence. And mm -hmm. for all that, that a lot of these right-wing idiots who don't want to wear masks talk about taking freedom for themselves and uh, protecting themselves and militiamen and blah, 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 three percenters. For all they talk about that, they are so willing to give up their control over their own power to the military and to cops. Well, and let's be fair. That's because a lot of them are yeah like that um, that's problem number one right there yeah yeah that's true like it's really easy to keep that power when you yourself are the one with the, the power because you're you are that person mm -hmm. anyway point is um yeah all these people that that are saying you can't make me wear a mask are the same people that the next breath will say yes the the police officers who deliberately ran over protesters in a variety of cities in the past month, um, they're a hundred percent justified for doing so because they were slightly inconvenienced in their method of transit. Or the police officers who, you know, put his knee on George Floyd's neck for what was it? Eight minutes, 46 seconds. Do yep. I have the right time count? Like it's, it's just an appreciation of violence. That is ultimately all it is. It's, uh, playground bullyism taken to an insane degree. But the problem is that the undercurrent of that runs through all of our society. You just talked about how it determines city and state budgets. You know, the, the 
the famous drill candles tweet about I'm spending $7 billion on this and a combined 650 on everything else. Um, that became real. We got to see it in yeah. cities in uh, various states, how 80, 90% of the city budget is going to police instead of to all of the problems that we have thrown at the police to fix. So we don't have housing. We don't have education. We certainly don't have healthcare. That has become incredibly obvious during this pandemic. Yeah. We don't have anything for the elderly or veterans or uh, to save, uh, help people in poverty. We don't have anything for people with disabilities. We expect people to make do with a patchwork of underfunded public and uh, crappy venture capital private services. And that's supposed to be enough. And the thing about that is that the pandemic has made, has, I think, had a real chance to lay, uh, you heard it here first, folks, the pandemic did good things. Um, <laughs> it was supposed to help lay bare the fact that our institutions are woefully incapable of helping us. And instead, I think what happened is that the forces of darkness in this country took a month off while you know some of the rich were also dying to kind of figure out what they were going to say and do. And then after a month, the messaging, whether they wanted to admit it or not, was all, we need to reopen so we can feed you all to the meat grinder. And those people over there that make uh, that are trying to make you wear a mask, they're the real enemy. Yeah. And ever since then, it has just gone absolutely downhill, like hell in a handbasket speed. Yeah, it, things, things are bleak. Um, they've been bleak for, for months. Uh, yeah, it, <clears throat> the frustrating part about trying to deal with the death drive that is central to American culture is that there's nothing you can say or do to logic or reason somebody out of the position that is inherently illogical. And for all economists like to talk about how humans are essentially rational, um, that, that assumes that what they're looking for is some, or, or the, what's motivating them is rational to begin with. Um, and I don't know how much of this weird death obsession is due to the fact that we haven't had a just war in arguably ever in this country outside of a few um, that we still have to have some justification for our existence beyond that. And for a long time, it was that we were the just power in the world, but I don't think even people believe that now. Even the ones that are obsessed with troops and, and freedoms and, and all of these 4th of July people, um, I don't think they believe that anymore themselves. Um, so I don't, it's hard as somebody who is much more rational than they are to wrap my head around all of this. So I don't know. I, I think this is... Um... This is a Warner thing. He likes to say, you know, people aren't rational, they're tribal. And I think that's absolutely true. Uh, you can put whatever complicated scaffolding you want on 
um, what you're going to say. You can pretend that there's some kind of reason undergirding it. But basically, when it comes down to it, every person is kind of moved by who they're going to believe uh, and what about that. And uh, it, part of that mechanism is, you know, how much does this advantage me personally and how much the disadvantage people who are like me personally. And what you've got now is we have a country that has been hollowed out of any real public spaces and public institutions outside of a few that are hanging around and that get, you know, a thousand cutted to death every time somebody gets half a chance. And that is a perfect Petri dish for uh, the kind of person that is going to refuse any kind of concession to the idea that they are a citizen in a country made up of other citizens. America is a, is a young country. It has only been around 240 something years. It is not super surprising that this is the way you know, every, every country has a national mythology. That's the just power thing that you were talking about. But I think it is very obvious to everyone now on some level that that hasn't been true. And the question is whether your response to that is try to change it or try to double down on the stereotypical things that make the rest of the world hate Americans. Because what I have found in my working life up here um, is that facts just don't matter. Ben Shapiro likes to say facts don't care about your feelings and you have all these right-wingers who seem to give a damn about logic and about reason and about facts, but they don't care. They Half of them obey facts that they profess not to believe and the rest of them could be presented with, are presented on a regular basis with incontrovertible evidence of being wrong. They don't care because that's not the reason... It, that that's never going to enter into it, into the equation. These are people who have given up on the idea that they exist in a world where other people exist as well. To them, it's, you know, complete solipsism. It's their world and the rest of us are living in it. They're them and the rest is parking. That's it. Yeah. And that's, that's the hardest part is trying to, because for everybody else who is normal, and wants to live in a, in a better society, that's really hard to do that because whatever society we're able to rebuild after this has to include people who, funda who are fundamentally against the ideals that would make the world a better place, that we could work together instead of against each other, that we could uh, help your neighbors rather than help yourself. Like these are things that just has a mind flip switch that would make things way, way better, but they're just so staunchly against it. Um, it's really frustrating that, that it, it feels like there's nothing that you can do. Okay, controversial take. <laughs> Cultural shock is okay to have. If you live in a town that used to be, you know, like some towns are in our region of New York, if you used to live in a town that was 100%, 100.0% Caucasian, and suddenly it's not, it's okay to be a little, uh, you know, Q 
curious about why that would happen and maybe a little bit kind of uh, mystified how that because I know that people don't register change on a daily basis easily. It just kind of it's like the frog in boiling water. Like it's just they're going to slowly catch on to it. But what the problem is, is that people have had it. People have had um, be it politicians, be it, you know, celebrities, be it um, media people, whatever. But they've had it made okay for them to be angry about that. And they've been able to turn that into um, just this thing of I only have to stand up and I only have to defend and I only have to help out people who look like me, who think like me, who do the same things that I do, who go to the same church I go to fairly often, things like that. And that's when you have the issue because it not only atomizes those people, but it has also enabled and uh, a lot of what we've seen in the last two months where you had all of these corporations that are, you know, actively killing uh, black and brown people the world over that are actively working with police and ICE uh, and are just hoping that we'll stop paying attention to them so they can go back to doing it under the table, pretending to be the world's biggest supporters of Black Lives Matter. You had organizations that are selling, you know, defense tech to countries that absolutely uh, oppress and discriminate against LGBT people within their borders, pretending to be uh, all about pride. What it has ultimately enabled is this culture where, to go back to the individualism thing, um, the the billionaires of the world get to sit there and, and pick out the special people from the rest of us uh, one by one and uh, just kind of uh, give them just enough to make them happy and shut them up, which is what they're really getting, and leave the rest of us fighting for the scraps. And that's going to produce a response in a lot of people that is is some of what we're seeing. It, it's a need to be acknowledged as a citizen and as a human being. And it has been absolutely poisoned uh, by a culture that wants, wants to turn people into human beings that are incapable of coexistence. So not really yeah. human beings after all. Yeah. It, this industrial loss of our humanity is really tragic and I don't think it's irreversible. Um, but it is absolutely something that we need to work on if we're to, to ever have a better go at any of this. Um, we just have to do better. So on that note, when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the ways that that might happen. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. You can subscribe to the show or listen to past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast apps. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm still Noah, and I'm joined by Lou. Hi, guys. Over the last two segments, we've laid out a lot of ways in which this country is basically a death cult. Um, first, more specifically within the context of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic and 
the ways in which a lot of people have uh, very normally and healthily processed that. And then the ways in which that has ended up actually undergirding a, a good amount of our society uh, by making it basically impossible to get anything done on a level beyond the individual. But that's the first two segments. And we'd like to try and end uh, on a more positive note. So we, we said we'd talk about what we could do instead. Lou, you want to start us off? Yeah. I mean, it comes back, like, first and foremost, we as people who want to live in a better world need to continue the actions that we recognize could make things better, which means not just could, but will make things better, which means we take care of our neighbors, that we understand that somebody else's gains are not the loss of ours, our own, that systemic problems that exist in our society are there, one, that they're there, two, that they can be overcome, but we need to make the correct policy choices to do that. So there's things that we can do um, from our own actions um, from and then working collectively to end this kind of continuous cycle of, of death and destruction that we've found ourselves trapped in that from police brutality to this endless stream of COVID deaths, all of it is connected to our insistence that the individual is more important than the collective. Um, The individual is great and we are all special in our own ways to put it very stupidly. Um, But we can do so much more if we work together than by individually picking off these little tiny negligible points of, of success. That, that I think is um, it, it pretty much lays bare what the ultimate problem is in, in most of the other developed countries of the world. The way that they've managed to contain this is by getting everybody to be on the same side. But of course, in the U.S., it's very difficult to get everybody to do that because, number one, everything is, um, and when I say this, I'm not saying it in the way that, you know, somebody who says that he just wants to watch football, why do these athletes have to have opinions, is saying it. Mm -hmm. But everything becomes politicized in a sense where just responding to a pandemic, a thing that itself has no ideology, pardon me. Uh, becomes part of the political process and what side you take on that determines what kind of person you are and all that. Um, We talked in the last segment about how America and its culture and the way that our economy is set up and the way that our labor market is set up is so defined by an obsession with death, either in its nobility or in its violence. And maybe one of the ways that we can start to claw a little space back is to, I don't know, talk about the opposite. We have so many things that, see, for me, I think the thing is people are afraid to do these things badly. A little behind the scenes talk, I should be more involved with a mutual aid organization in this region, and I promise I will be soon if any of you are listening. Um, (laughs) But that is one of the things that has kept me from doing it is plain old fear that I'm going to be bad at it. Um, 
it is much, I think it is much harder for a lot of people to have the vulnerability, the honesty, the, um, the willingness to put yourself out there for something that is ultimately non-competitive, that is ultimately cooperative. Because at least in competition, if you win, uh, if you get more than the other person, if that's how you construe the world, you have objectively something that they don't. And that maybe helps you sleep at night. But in a cooperative project and something that's supposed to make everybody's lives better, if you are measured at all, you are measured by how much, what a positive impact you made. And there are so many ways to mess that up that it makes people, I think, a lot of people fundamentally extremely timid. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, especially when, when we're judged so on our individual actions, like that's bound to happen. Um, and that requires a lot of personal growth and, and, and acceptance and understanding and hopefully, and it requires practice to do that. It, you know, we aren't going to be better comrades overnight unless we're working at it. And it, it takes a lot of work. It's exhausting. But in the end, I hope that we would all recognize that we were are there for each other and there to do better. And yeah. I think for a lot of spaces, like it's not all doom and gloom. Like there is a lot of recognition and there is a lot of growth in our society that is I'm cautiously saying is moving in the right direction that there is recognition of the systemic problems that exist and there's steps towards correcting that. A lot of times it does feel like there's one step forward and two steps back. And, but I, I feel like with COVID happening and as bad as it is, especially for vulnerable populations, there is a recognition that what we have now in this country is not sustainable, either in terms of just compassion for fellow human beings or in terms of the survivability of the country. Um, I'm not one that puts a lot of or faith in, in nation states in general, but a lot of people do. In I think that they're starting to recognize that if they want to have this magical thing of a country, we've got to make changes in our own behavior and how we operate. Um, so I, I think there is room and movement and it does, however, start with your person and your, your acceptance and, and understanding that growth has to happen. I think one one important thing to note there is that part of the problem with individualism being sort of the, the, the sole actual ideological current for so long of so much American culture is that, you know, the, the idea that collective action that was first supposed to be communist and then once the Soviet Union rattled off, um, it was then something that you tended to identify with religious movements. And that was trouble because now you had sort of an atheist wing of the left and center that didn't want anything to do with that. And I think what you 
found out now, and maybe this is an important realization to have made, is that community does not, and, and this goes back to something I said in the last segment, community and tribalism are not the same thing. Um, and there's a lot of people out there who would like you to believe that they are, and they're the people with, you know, Roman statues as their avatars. But um, the, the idea that community can only be found with those who are already like you, that there is no her, heterogeneity in uh, a communal or collective space, I think is what kills it for a lot of people. A lot of Americans feel uh, wrongly that in any kind of less individualistic society that their, you know, their edges will be filed off. Um, that they'll be less allowed to be the person that they are. And in case you think I'm showing excessive sympathy to these people, in a lot of cases, those need filing off. We're talking here about the kind of people who think it's okay to talk about people of color, to talk about women, um, to talk about you know LGBTQ people, to talk about uh, people of um, any difference from themselves. Uh, as if they were subhuman. And that's not something that should be acceptable in society. But at the same time, um, there has to be, and there always will be, and I think this is the important thing. This, I think, is the realization. People are coming to grips with the fact that not being terrible to other people does not make you less who you are as a person. That those two things exist on different axes, that they don't, that they run, uh, you know, just absolutely differently from each other. You can be a nice person, you can, or, or even if you're not traditionally what we consider to be a nice or kind person, you can be somebody who is helpful to your neighbors nonetheless. Uh, one of the things that I know from talking to comrades in the last couple of weeks is the variety of things that they've been doing to support movements in their locales. Like, no, not everybody is going out and protesting because there are people who are immunocompromised or there are people who are older or there are people who have to work during those hours because they're, quote unquote, essential workers. So what they end up doing is, uh, you know, they find ways to, if they're working from home, listen on uh, listen to police radios and try to figure out what's going on. There are people who do uh, bail funds and things like that. There are people who do uh, mutual aid and, and that kind of thing. That is something that brings you into contact with other people and contact with other people can be messy and it can be scary, but it is also the only way that we get out of this because it's the only way that you uh, have to deal with the fact that other people exist. And this is me saying this, and I'm not a particular fan of interaction in general, but I think that it is paramount for everyone, myself included, to learn to coexist and not in the sappy bumper sticker kind of way, but in the way that we come to grips with the fact that there are things that we have to do and should do for one another and that we don't do enough of. and that there are some things that the reason we don't do enough of them is because it shouldn't be done on an individual basis. It should be something that is provided as a public service, but we've gutted those those uh, with the consent of large portions of the voting public and then are 
now essentially surprised that they don't exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's exactly that is a lot. The recognition that choices that we individually make do impact other people, um, not just in terms of COVID, but in terms of our daily lives outside of it. We, the choices that we individually make also impact policy decisions. And the choices that elites have made from the past 50, 60 years have led us to the point where we cannot deal with a pandemic in a way that's going to save people. And that is, if anything, actively feeding people to the death machine that is this country. We have to do better or we will all die. And not in a rapturous way where we can have a good time. We're going to die miserable and cold and hungry. We're probably not cold. We'll probably be boiling to death because we can't solve climate change either. But we can do it. I, I like I, I wouldn't be a socialist or in this any kind of movement like this if I didn't think there were that there was a possibility of us affecting change and making it happen. But it's going to take a lot of work, and that's hard. But the rewards of it will be so much better than what we can get now. That's that's it. That's the end of the story, is we have to do better so we can be better. That's uh, in turn. There's the whole thing. You just said it. We could probably go on talking about this uh, for a very long time, but it seems like we're running against the clock at this point. So for this week, I'm Noah. And I'm Lou. And this was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Leo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.